Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Very warm welcome to you. Have a wonderful day. I'm hoping that you your day has been great so far and will continue to be as great, if not better. It's Thursday afternoon, fresh thinking time as we prepare ourselves not only for a Shabbos this week, but for a big event, the Festival of Shavuot, or as I like to pronounce it, as many people like to pronounce it, Shavuos. And for some reason, it's a little bit overlooked. But it shouldn't be. It's a very big day on the calendar. So we're going to talk about a little bit of Shavuos. We'll talk about just at the beginning. And then there's something on my mind that I wanted to share with you and hear your views on. As always, you are welcome to join the conversation at any time. You can SMS 34519. You can WhatsApp 061 Eight nine five one zero one nine. You can call the studio on oh one oh one four oh three oh two oh. And of course, as many people on this show like to do, you can tweet at Chai FM. You can tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. So before we get into the main topic for today, I want to just throw out a little trivia question. You're going to have to be really fast to respond to this because we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But uh, get your thumbs ready. On three four five one nine or zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. My question is this: Pesach has the Pesach Seder. Rosh Hashanah has the blowing of the shofar. Yom Kippur obviously has the fasting and praying. Chanukah the Menorah, Purim the Megillah, and Shavuos has. I mean, you'll notice that all the things that I've listed are. Pretty much the main elements of that particular festival, not the only elements. So Pesach has the Seder, Rosh Hashanah has the Shofar, Chanukah has the Menorah, Purim has the Megillah, and Shofar and Shavuos, the holiday that we'll be celebrating this Sunday and Monday, has what? What would you say is the one primary element of this particular holiday? And the reason I ask the question is because in Jewish thinking, we don't celebrate these festivals as commemorations only. Yes, of course, there's a commemorative side to it, but we celebrate them as reenactments. So if you want to capture what the main there we go. Somebody's quick on the draw over there. Pity you didn't put your name on that SMS. Don't you want to just send us a name as well? So each festival is the opportunity to key in to the spiritual energy that was available first time around that made that day special. So Pesach, for example, the energy is about breaking out of your personal prison, just like the Jews got out of Egypt, which was the collective prison. So Likewise, we have the opportunity every Pesach to break out of our personal prison. And so to access that particular energy on Pesach, we have something called a Pesach Seder. Thanks. We got the name now. I'm going to share your answer in just a moment. Let's see if anybody else has an answer. So Rosh Hashanah is all about the fact that originally Rosh Hashanah was the first time in the whole creative process that anybody acknowledged Hashem's authority. God as king. Remember, Rosh Hashanah is not the anniversary of the creation of the world. It's the anniversary of the creation of humans. And with humans came the consciousness that there is a creator. So the energy of Rosh Hashanah is 
to key in and acknowledge the Creator. And the way that we do that is by blowing the shofar, which is similar to the inaugural sounds of a king at his coronation, where they blow trumpets. And of course, when it comes to Hanukkah, it's quite obvious what the link is to the menorah. So the question is, what's the main element of the holiday of Shavuos? Now, Mandy has been first up, quickest response, and I'm going to share her response, which I think is the correct response. So I'm going to share with you in just a moment, but just some of the elements of the holiday of Shavuos, eating dairy products, cheesecake. It's about staying up through the night on Saturday night to study Torah. It's about the story of Ruth. It's the giving of the Torah, the commemoration of the Ten Commandments, which we read in Shul on Sunday morning. And if your children go to a Jewish day school, quite likely they're going to come with a basket to fill with fruit to commemorate the ancient tradition of Bikurim, where they would bring fruits to the temple at this time of the year. And of course, what we do with the fruit is we give them to underprivileged people. So out of those elements, which one is the one? Which one is the primary element of what this holiday is all about? And I'll tell you what's interesting is, ironically and strangely, unlike all the other holidays where the primary element is the one that everybody knows about and everybody celebrates, with this one, it gets somewhat overlooked. So everybody knows that in order to have Pesach, you have to have a Pesach Seder. People who are not observant in any other area of their Judaism know that you have a Pesach Seder. We spoke about it actually at the time. There was a, st- a statistic that came out of Israel this year about the extremely high participation rate in the Pesach Seder amongst non-observant Israelis. Same thing with Rosh Hashanah. People know that you've got to hear the shofar, even if you don't do much else. And yes, there are other elements like dipping apples in honey and so forth, but people know it. They know that that's what you are supposed to do on that particular holiday. We know what you're supposed to do on Sukkot. We know what you're supposed to do on Hanukkah, on Purim, even on Tu Bishvat. But when it comes to this holiday, which is this weekend, the holiday of Shavuos, not everybody knows what the primary responsibility is. So that's why I'm going to say thank you to Mandy first up on the SMS who said that the primary element of the holiday of Shavuos is to listen to the Ten Commandments. You see, Shavuos commemorates when God appeared in front of a few million people, because that was the size of the Jewish population at the time, somewhere around the two and a half million people mark. And they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. God appeared and said the Ten Commandments. We know that there was a presentation of the entire Torah, and you should never make the mistake of thinking that the Torah is only about the Ten Commandments or that the Ten Commandments have higher priority over other instructions in the Torah. But the fact of the matter is that the revelation at Sinai was centered on the announcement of the Ten Commandments. And then later, subsequently, 40 days later, Moses came off the mountain and gave them the details. But there at The holiday of Shavuos, first time around, 3,300 years ago, it was the announcement of the Ten Commandments. So we believe that when you sit at a Pesach Seder, you can re-experience the exodus from Egypt. And when you hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, you can re-experience the first conscious awareness of God as Creator. So we believe that on Sunday morning, if you're at Shul, well, you should be at Shul. You should put all your other interests on hold for this Sunday Get to Shul, find out what time Shul is 
at your closest shul. Find out when in the service they'll be reading the Ten Commandments. I have good news for you. The Torah reading on Sunday is quite short. So even if you just go for the Torah reading, it won't be a very long experience. And when you stand there and you hear them read the Ten Commandments, our custom is that the entire congregation rises. We all turn towards the reader of the Torah, exactly as the Jews stood all facing towards the mountain. And that's that's when they heard the uh, the Ten Commandments. So for us to be there at Mount Sinai, well, we can't go to Mount Sinai. In fact, the truth of the matter is that there's some debate as to whether what we call Mount Sinai today is even the original Mount Sinai. But we can be there conceptually. We can be there spiritually. We can re-experience and reenact the entire revelation at Sinai. And the way that we do that is we go on Sunday and we stand there and we listen to the Ten Commandments. It takes all of five minutes. And just like when the Torah was given first time around, it was men, women, and children. And by the way, the children were very important to the whole process because we're told that the children were the ones who convinced, if you could use that word, convinced God that it was going to be worthwhile to give us the Torah. So bring your kids Sunday morning, whichever shul it is that you go to, it's really significant. If you don't have cheesecake and you're lactose intolerant, it's okay. You'll still manage to do the holiday of Shavuos. And if you don't stay up the whole night on Saturday night and study Torah, even though that is the custom, but you don't do it, all right, do the best you can. Maybe learn five minutes of Torah more than you would normally have done on Saturday night. But if there's one thing you're going to do this holiday of Shavuos, this is the one thing. Get to shul on Sunday morning, not just to hear the reading of the Torah, but to visualize in your own mind's eye that just as you stand there united with your community, so the whole Jewish community, every single one of them, including our tradition says, all of our souls stood there in unison at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard those exact words, those eternal words that you're going to hear on Sunday morning. Do it. Take the family. Try it. It will hopefully be not only inspiring for you, but connecting, connecting you and other people. That's the main thing to do this holiday of Shavuos. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So that is just by way of introduction. Ah, somebody points out, I'm glad people are listening. So it's actually a friend of mine pointed out that I mentioned, I guess I must have done that by accident, mentioned that the the reading of the Ten Commandments is on Saturday morning. It's not. It's on Sunday morning. Sunday morning. That's when you've got to be at Shul for the reading of the Ten Commandments. By the way, you should be at Shul on Saturday morning too. We read the Torah then as well. And it's uh, it's actually a lovely Torah reading this week on Saturday. But the big function, the big focus of this time of the year is going to be on Sunday morning. I love this. Somebody sent in an SMS asking for a Hasidish Meister about Shavuos. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we get to that because uh, I'm actually about to go off onto a slightly different topic, not off the Shavuos topic. In fact, very much related. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely just off the story track for now. I don't know. Maybe a story will come into it. And, I'm going to ask somebody, Christina sent in a very interesting WhatsApp. I'm going to have to ask somebody who uh, maybe Craig even knows the nature of the music that we play. Um, if you, they can come back to you, Christina, and give you some more information on that. So 
or, or you could call the office. That might be another way to find out. You can you can uh, contact the office, and the number to call would be 010-140-4090. Okay, so they should be able to help you with a lot more detail on the music. That's not my particular skill set on this show. So, seeing as we're coming up for the holiday of Shavuos, I just want to give you a particular perspective on a detail related to the holiday, and let's try and extract a lesson from it. So we're told that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. And there's a piece of the Talmud that says, why Mount Sinai? I mean, there are much more prevalent, much more famous, even in Israel, much more prestigious, if you want, mountains. And the the Talmud asks the question, why did it land up being on Sinai? Now, I'm pretty sure that most people know the answer to that. And if you do know the answer, and you can get in quickly before I say it, that's absolutely fine. I'd, I'd love that. But, uh, for example, there is the mountain in Israel called Mount Tavor, which became famous at a different point in history. You have Mount Carmel, which also became – Carmel is almost like a range of, of mountains along the Haifa coast. So they became famous at other points in history for other major events that happened in Jewish history. Sinai has just this one moment of glory and that is the time of the giving of the Torah so the Talmud says the reason that God chose Sinai is and this is the quotation because Sinai was a humble mountain in fact the expression is which implies that it was lower than the other mountains in other words God wanted to convey a message of humility around the not the giving of the Torah because the mountain was not the place of the giving of the Torah. It was really the place of the receiving of the Torah, if you think about it. In other words, Moses, as representative of the Jewish people, had to climb that mountain in order to receive the Torah. So there's a very important message over there. And that message is, if you want to receive the wisdom of the Torah, you need to have humility. That's a prerequisite. We have a lot of literature in Judaism that speaks about the importance and value of humility and the dangers of arrogance. For example, the Talmud says that when a person exhibits arrogance, then God says, well, I'm not going to occupy the same space as that person. It's almost as if to say they've filled the whole space. They've left no room for me. So humility is a very big topic in Judaism. It's a very high ideal. It's one of those things that we're supposed to aspire towards and not in in small measure. It's one of those things that we're told you can even do to the extreme. Generally speaking, the advice in Judaism is that you should keep a middle path. You should keep balance in your life. But when it comes to humility, we're told go to the extreme. The Talmud uses the expression ma'oid ma'oid that you should be exceedingly lowly of spirit. The Maimonides gives this whole guide to what kind of a human being we should become and how we should balance our character. When it comes to humility, he says you've got to run from arrogance to the nth degree. So it's a very big subject in Judaism, this concept of humility. And it got me thinking if one of the cornerstones of the experience of receiving the Torah, which we will celebrate this coming Sunday and Monday in the holiday of Shavuos, is humility. So I wanted to just throw around some questions and I'd love to hear your input around humility. So question number one, how do you identify humility? In other words, how do you know if a person is humble? And maybe it's obvious to you. Maybe you could tell straight away when a person is humble. Maybe you believe that there's something really outright that 
indicates that a person is humble. I think sometimes it's not that clear. There may be some very paradoxical elements about being humble. There may be some gray areas about being humble. So let's have a conversation around being humble. I don't know if society generally in today's world considers humility to be the same kind of value that we used to consider it to be. In today's world, if a person is brash but successful, we say, Good for them, they were successful. If a person is arrogant but gets the job done, we say, well, how else would you expect them to get the job done if they weren't able to assert themselves? So somewhere along the way in society today, you may not agree with us, but it feels as if humility is no longer regarded as a value in the same way as it is in Jewish thought. So because of that, there might be a confusion in people's minds between humility and low self-esteem. Now, one of the things we're most afraid of, I think, in today's world is that people should develop a low self-esteem. So my question to you is, how do you identify humility? How do you know if a person is humble? How do you distinguish between the humble person, which is a very positive experience, and the person with low self-esteem, which is not a positive experience. How, how do we make sense of all of this? Here we are. We're at a time of the year where we're told that it's all about being ready to receive the Torah afresh. Because to us, it's a repetition of the same event just happening in our lives. So in order to receive the Torah, we've got to do the things that they had to do then. And we see that humility was very much a precursor. So I want to test this. I mean, any thoughts that you have on it? Do you think that humility is frowned upon in the modern world? Do you see that it's seen as weakness in the modern world? Do you think that it is easy to detect humility in a person? Do you think that perhaps it's difficult in today's world to detect humility? Do you think humility appears in the guise of humility? Or might it sometimes appear in a different guise? And like I say, how can you tell the difference between humility and low self-esteem? And if we don't really get this right, so here we've got something which the Torah speaks about a lot and, and says that it's something that we should be looking to achieve in our lives. It's a value. So the question is, how do we achieve this value if we're not even quite sure what it is that we're trying to achieve. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on exactly that point. Keep them coming. 34519 if you're going to send an SMS. 0618951019 if you'd like to WhatsApp. You should say that that number in your phone. 0618951019. You can tweet. There's a bunch of tweets. I'm going to share some of them with you. They're coming through literally as we speak. Tweets go to at FM or you can just tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. And let's talk about this. Let's talk about this concept of humility. Something that perhaps we don't talk about openly, often enough. I don't know. Let's see what you think. While you're thinking about that, you need to know that Pick and Pay Hyper Norwood has the following specials, which are valid until the 18th of May. So they've got chicken, pick and pay, kosher, whole bird, one packs. I'm sure that's, that's a grammatical error. It should be pick and pay, kosher, chicken, whole bird, one packs. Have reduced from 59 rand 99 to 49 rand 99. Clover Tassas uh, is down from 63.54 to 54.99. 
They've got Oli with non-dairy cream reduced from 20 rand 17 to 13.99 and Lancewood cottage cheese the chunky plain 250 gram was 30 rand 25 and is now 23 rand 99. That's pick and pay hyper Norwood. So if you have just joined us as some people do halfway through the show. So the question for today is humility. That's our discussion. That's what we want to analyze. We want to pull apart. We want to dissect. We want to understand what is humility? How do you define humility? How do you distinguish between humility and low self-esteem? And maybe some people will say that that's really, really obvious, which might very well be the case. But let's talk about it because who knows? Uh, Here, Rene says shyness could sorry it's a question could shyness be a form of humility interesting interesting point could shyness be a form of humility i don't know i'm not sure and and i'd love to hear other people weigh in on exactly that point does shy equal humble and vice versa does humble equal shy hmm Interesting point. Robin says or also asks as a question, they'll tell you. Now, I'm not sure if that was intended tongue in cheek, if that was a little bit of a cynical remark or an honest remark. In other words, you know, they joke about all kinds of things. You know, they, they joke about how do you know if somebody is, I'm not going to put in the particular complete the sentence because you could complete the sentence. But people often say, how do you know that somebody is? And they say, because they tell you. So would you be able to use that sentence and say, how do you know that somebody is humble because they tell you? That's interesting. So I don't know if Robin intended that as a little bit of a dig or as a genuine remark. Do you think a humble person would tell you that they're humble? Rene is saying that a humble person might very well be shy. And if that's the case, they certainly are not going to tell you that they are humble. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, let's keep this conversation alive. So how do you know if somebody is humble? What are the signs and how do you distinguish between healthy humility and unhealthy low self-esteem now here's an interesting remark so eliyahu says compliment them and see what happens that is really interesting so let's go down that road for a moment if you give a person a compliment will their reaction be a dead giveaway as to whether or not they are humble Mm, i don't know Very often you have people who, when you compliment them, they don't know what to do with it. And so they might then downplay themselves. Oh, no, it was nothing. Or I'm not really that talented. I'm not really that smart. You know, people often feel uncomfortable with a direct compliment, especially when it comes from somebody who perhaps they're not that close to. And they don't know what to do with it. So would that be a test of humility? So, for example, if a person says, wow, you're really smart. No, I'm not that smart. Anybody could have done it. Anybody could have, you know. Is that humility? Is that humility? Or is that just discomfort in the social setting? Or is it low self-esteem? So I'm not certain that the response, the reaction that a person gives you to when you compliment them is necessarily the sign of humility. 
Another angle on the story, by the way, if we are going to talk about the giving of the Torah and we are going to talk about humility, we do know that the person who was allocated to receive the Torah on our behalf, being Moses, was chosen for that, well, various reasons why he was chosen for the task. But one of the reasons he was chosen for the task is because of his incredible humility to the point that later on, right at the end of the Torah, we're told that there has never been a person of the caliber of humility that Moses had. Was Moses shy? How would you imagine Moses responding to somebody complimenting him? Imagine somebody came up and said, Moses, you're an amazing person. You you stood up to Pharaoh and you achieved emancipation for your people. And he said, no, it was nothing. It wasn't me. I mean, he probably should have said it wasn't me because at the end of the day, he was purely God's agent. And by the way, that will give us some insight into the notion of humility as uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. In fact, I see somebody's made a similar comment here on Twitter, which is really to the point but I'm going to leave them for a little bit later so apologies um, not that you know who you are necessarily until I read it out but I'm going to leave it till a little bit later because it's really to the point and sometimes it's nice to allow people the opportunity just to have the conversation first so would you be able to say I don't get this one Shalom says generally the opposite is quite visible so I don't know if because my question is how can you tell if somebody's humble and Shalom is saying generally the opposite is quite visible. I, I, I wonder if that means that when a person is not humble, it's quite visible. In, in which case, I certainly agree with that. You can tell, unfortunately, straight away. The Talmud even uses the expression that says when a person is arrogant, their own family can't stand them. <laughs> wow. That's quite a heavy statement, but I suppose it's a statement we could relate to. We probably all know people who, in fact, are that way, you know, in your face, really arrogant. Philip says on Twitter, if you don't know that he exists, then he is humble. Some people, however, are world famous for their humility. Mm, not sure what to make of that. So the first part of the statement is if you don't know that somebody exists, then they are humble. So does that then tie in with what Rene said, that humble people are shy? Or does that imply that in order to be humble, you have to be a reticent personality. Can a public figure be humble? Is that possible? Because what Philip is suggesting over here is if the person is known, then they're not humble. But then he says some public figures were very well known. How did he say it exactly? I'm just trying to find that tweet again. There you go. Some people have a world famous for the humility. So again, I don't know if that was, if that was a balance of what he said at the beginning, that you don't know somebody when they're humble, or if it was a cynical remark that some people are well known for the humility, meaning to say that they're not really that humble. They just tell everybody how humble they are. And there are a bunch of other comments over here, and I definitely want to share some of them with you. So, but before we do that, I want want to just also share an insight that's going to be relevant to this conversation. At this time of the year, there is a custom. When I say this time of the year, I'm talking about the period of counting the Omer, so the seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuos. There's a custom that certain communities follow to study a certain tractate of the Talmud, which is called Soita. Now, the ostensible reason is because there are exactly 49 folios of this tractate and exactly 49 days of the Omer, so it works out well. You know, you do a, sec- uh, you do a, a folio per day and you, you get through the whole thing. 
But there's obviously a lot more to the story. I mean, we don't do things willy-nilly in Judaism. We don't just choose to study something at a particular time of the year because the page numbers work out. It's all for good reason. The, con- the conclusion of the tractate, which is always the section that we study just before the holiday of Shavuos. In other words, we'll conclude the tractate this Saturday. And what we'll read then is we'll read a very intriguing comment. So the comment goes that when one of the great sages passed away, the Talmud makes a comment. He was the last of truly humble people. There were no more. That was the end of it. There's no more true humility in the world following the passing of this particular sage. And then the Talmud records that one of the latter sages, meaning to say already like a generation or so later, says, no, no, no. Don't say that humility ceased with that particular rabbi because there's still me. Now, the minute you hear that, that jars you. It scrapes on your eardrum. How could a person possibly, in good conscience, say something like that? Don't think that there's no more humility because there's me. Is that not automatically an arrogant statement? Is that not automatically the undermining of the concept of humility? How can you have said such a thing? And, and the commentaries try and offer various suggestions that the people of the time were humble in accepting him as their leader, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's not what he says. He says, there's me, as if to say, I am still the person of humility, even when you claim that humility no longer exists. And I think when we test that particular story, we'll hopefully get a healthy perspective on what humility is all about. And it's not what a lot of us think it to be. So give some thought to that story and your comments on it. We'll come back to that in a moment. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So we're talking humility, and now the messages are flying in. I didn't actually anticipate that it would be such a compelling topic, I'll be honest. And I'm so pleased that it is, because I think it's very interesting, and it's something which we need to talk about. It's a value which has eroded somewhat in society, I think. That's the way that I feel about it, at least. So it's important to talk about. And there's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of conversation coming up on this. So the last thing that I just brought to everybody's attention is the idea that there's a sage in the Talmud who says, do not for one moment think that humility has left this world because there's me. <laughs> Wow, I promise you, if any of us would hear somebody say something like that, we would roll our eyes. We would straight away dismiss that person as being one of the most arrogant people we have ever met. Are you kidding me? You're going to tell us how humble you are? But we're talking about one of the greatest sages of Judaism. He must have meant something more significant. SMS here from Moshe says, usually the loud, arrogant people are actually people with low self-esteem trying to compensate. Yes, that is true. And so, unfortunately, uh, low self-esteem sometimes looks very different to humility. Humility is, is, is quiet and comfortable with itself rather than loud and it can be assertive. I think it's important for us to know that humility can be assertive. And that does not undermine the fact that it is humility. AJ on Twitter says, I would think it depends on the one who they appear to. The onlooker's character will have much to do with their interpretation of humility. That's so true. 
We project ourselves onto other people. So if a person is themselves battling with arrogance, they will far quicker read arrogance into another person's behavior or way of speaking than should be read into it. So take this rabbi in the Talmud saying, don't say there's no more humility because there's me. Well, if I feel a sense of ego, I'll project that onto him and say, wow, what an overinflated ego. And then I'll judge him as not being humble. Meanwhile, I could completely miss everything about what he was trying to say. So AJ's point is a very valid and significant point to this conversation. Flora on Twitter says, low self-esteem hurts, humility does not. That's a nice insight. That's a very nice insight because I think it's important to understand that humility is fundamentally a healthy position and low self-esteem is fundamentally an unhealthy position. So that's a good way of putting it. That, uh, yes, that humility can, does not hurt. Here's somebody else. I, I, sometimes I don't know how to pronounce people's Twitter handles. So here's Erowine, I think that's how you pronounce it. it. says, humility is when you know your value. Low self-esteem is when you don't. Hmm. Absolutely. So we need to break away from this understanding of humility as being a person who does not appreciate who they are, what their talents are, what their abilities are. When a person gives you a compliment and you feel the need to say, oh, please don't, wasn't such a big deal, that's not humility. That's denial. Possibly it's low low self-esteem. Possibly it's discomfort just in that particular social setting. But it's not humility. Humility is, in the case of Moses, we're told that Moses was the most humble person who ever lived. But the way that the Torah says it is that he was the most humble person with regards to other people. In other words, Moses understood the key principle of humility. It's the same principle the Talmud is telling us in this particular story of a rabbi who turns around and says, don't think that humility has ceased because there's me. They're both sharing the same principle in completely different ways, but they're both sharing the same principle. And the principle goes as follows. The principle says, humility is all about context. So if a person goes to the one extreme and thinks that they're the bee's knees, they're really important to society, people should listen to them, people should give them airtime or honor, etc. That's off the path of humility. That's out of context. Context is there are 7 billion people on the planet, and while you may very well have something of value to say, it does not necessarily make you any better than any of the other 7 billion people on the planet. So the one side of the context of humility is don't get carried away with yourself. Don't think you're such a big deal. The other side of the context is don't think you're a nothing. Don't think that you're completely weak or valueless. That's also out of context. When we were kids, the principal of our school used to have a, a picture hanging up on the wall in his office with this grumpy looking kid. I'm sure you've seen it before with his chin resting on his hands. And he says, I know I'm worth something because God don't make no junk. So that's the other side of the perspective of the balance of humility is to understand I'm not nothing. I'm not meaningless. I, I need to... Every one of us has a responsibility to recognize what our strengths are. 
The moment we don't recognize those strengths, we end up losing our opportunity to live life's purpose. We lose our opportunity to actually do what God put us here for. So humility is not to deny our strengths. Humility is not to pretend that we're not who we are. It's to be comfortable in our own skin. So it's all about context. So here's the context that Moses had. The context that Moses had was nothing that I have done was my own doing alone. Moses understood absolutely without question that he got to where he got to because he had God backing him. Because God said, you go to Pharaoh. God said, you do this. God said, you throw your stick on the floor and it turns into a snake or you lift your stick up and frogs come flying out of the river or the sea splits. Moses knew absolutely without question that while he had been chosen to fulfill this particular mission, he was only able to fulfill the mission because of resources that were not of his own making. Resources that were given to him. So the humble person knows this. The humble person knows, yes, I am smart. Yes, I am artistic. Yes, I am musical. Yes, I am a nice person. Yes, I am a good listener. But that's not something that I should get on a pedestal for because I didn't achieve any of those things by my own doing. I was born with artistic talent. I'm wired in a particular way that makes me a good listener. I happen to be a generous person. That's not something for me to be arrogant about. That's something for me to recognize that it's thanks to God-given gifts that I'm in this particular position. That's humility. Humility is to know who we are, what we've got, where it came from, and therefore, I don't know if the next person might have done a better job had they been given my gifts. I'll never know that. But I always have to assume that it's a possibility. I always have to assume that if that person was given my IQ, if that person was given my circumstances, if that person was given my temperament, if that person was given my talent, maybe they would have achieved way better than me. So to be humble is to acknowledge what I have, acknowledge where it came from, and acknowledge the possibility that there are 7 billion people out there who, given my opportunities, may have done a better job than I did. Humility is not shrinking away out of the limelight. Humility could be a healthy dose of being assertive. Humility can very well be about doing things that you know you're good at. It's just not taking credit, not letting it go to your head, not making it become the reason you consider yourself to be head and shoulders above everybody else. That's the challenge of humility. And with that in mind, let's go back to the story of the rabbi who said, hang on, humility hasn't ceased. There's still me. What was he really saying? And you'll see it's an incredibly valuable lesson for all of us. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So here you've got the story of a rabbi. This is going to be the story that gives us an incredible insight into how humility works. You've got the story of a rabbi who says the following. Just in context, this is a section in the Talmud that talks about a whole lot of things that declined around about the time of the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem. And all of those things that declined can all be put down to one fundamental cause. With the destruction of the temple, immediately what happened was there was a drastic drop in consciousness about God. Meaning to say, at the time that the temple stood, people were very conscious of God in their lives. And because of that, they had context. When you're very conscious of God, you obviously are not arrogant. 
Humility is directly proportionate to how much we feel God in our lives because then we realize everything I have comes from him on a daily basis. It's not that once upon a time he wired me this particular way. The fact that I woke up today and I still have those talents and I still have that functionality is his gift to me today. That's what keeps people from becoming arrogant. So the Talmud makes the statement that at a certain period in time, that natural ability to have that awareness of God, which naturally led people to be humble, ceased. And that was a bit of a despondent moment. Oh, my gosh. So is this just going to be a time in history that will get worse and worse as people become more and more self-oriented and and more and more arrogant? So this rabbi stands up and he says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you that it's possible to put an effort to become humble. Maybe it doesn't come naturally. Maybe you don't have that automatic awareness as they used to have in such a wonderful time. But that doesn't stop you from working on yourself. And that's what he was saying. He says, I can work on myself and you can work on yourself. And every person can work on themselves just to have a little bit more awareness of context, a little bit more awareness of God. So if it doesn't just spill over from some holy central part of the Jewish nation, i.e. the temple, and maybe it's harder to find, it doesn't make it impossible to find. And I suppose as we go into the holiday of Shavuos, and we're supposed to prepare ourselves to be able to receive the Torah, and as I said right at the beginning, in order to receive the Torah, we have to be in a position of humility. It's no accident that this is the piece of Talmud that we study just before we go into this holiday, because this is the piece of Talmud that says, so you're not standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. You're not experiencing divine revelation. You're not in the temple where miracles happened at every turn. You're just in your home, in your office, in your car, in ordinary 21st century life. And you might think you don't have the resources to experience humility. So we learn this passage of Talmud just before we go into this holiday to remind us that even when the chips are down, when the the odds are stacked against us, every one of us has the possibility, the potential, the opportunity with some focus and learning and growth and contemplation, every one of us could be humble, not weak, not low self-esteem, a healthy, balanced humility, a humility like the mountain of Sinai. On the one hand, it's a mountain. It's not a pushover. It's strong. It stands with pride. On the other hand, it's a humble mountain that knows the distinction between being pleased with or confident in what I have and not to get carried away with who I think I am because of it. So just to wrap up over here, uh, Deborah sent a WhatsApp to say, does humility and meekness go hand in hand? I would definitely say yes. The only problem is that people often misunderstand exactly what meekness means. Let's not confuse meek with weak. Meek would mean that you are able to step back. You're able to be flexible. You're able to accept Yes, absolutely. Humility goes hand in hand with that. It's been wonderful. Great messages. I didn't even get to all of the tweets because some of them were quite uh, similar to others. So I left them. Apologies to those of you who sent in tweets and they did not get shared. But it's really been great. And as always, there's so much insight in the audience of this show. I want to wish you a wonderful Shabbos and a good Yontav. Reminder, 
Whatever you do over the 48-hour period of Shavuos, make sure to get to Shul on Sunday morning to hear the reading of the Ten Commandments. It is the single most significant thing that you can do this weekend. Have a wonderful weekend, a wonderful Yom Tov, and a great week ahead.